Morning. Good to see you guys. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, you know, we've been in a long study in the book of Genesis the last 18 weeks, 18, 19 weeks, and we are not yet uh, a quarter of the way, well, we're a little over a quarter of the way, a third of the way through the book at this point, that's good. We'll be in it for a little bit longer, Um, maybe the next year or so we'll still be in this book, so it's a great study, hopefully. Well, let me ask you this, as, uh, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 19, what comes to your mind when I say Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> That's funny, some of you, you chuckled. Uh, you know, if you've been raised in the church, uh, you know Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the darkest, one of the most twisted sections of scripture that there is. As I was printing out my message this morning, I was talking to Pastor Jeremy walked in, and he said, hey, are you covering Sodom and Gomorrah this morning? And I said, yeah, I am. And he started chuckling, and he said, well, good luck. <laughs> and then as I walked in, another guy said, hey, Sodom and Gomorrah, good luck. <laughs> I thought, thank you. I, I need all of this good luck that's wished upon me. How many of you guys read ahead this week? Raise your hands. Okay, was it nice bedtime reading? <laughs> no. It is not. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, it is not a kid's story. There is no flannel graphs covering Sodom and Gomorrah. I wish there were, um, but there's not. There's no, there's no flannel graphs of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not a kid's story. The, the term sodomy comes from the account that we're going to read, which should tell you how graphic the passage that we're about to read is. It is... It's a story of the depth of human depravity. It's really what it is. It's a story of the depth of human depravity. And it's hard for us in our culture to hear this because we've been raised in a culture that tells us humans are basically good. And all the depravity, it's external. And God's word says, balderdash. None of that's true. It's not external. It's internal. It comes out of the human heart. All he, the scripture is very clear that the wickedness and depravity, it's not, it's not simply external, which is how we've been raised, which is why we try to legislate it. And we try to educate it out of us. We throw money at it. We throw, we, we, um, legislate, we make more laws regarding it. We do all sorts of things to try to push it away. And yet, it's internal. It's the human heart that's completely wicked. And that comes out so clearly in the story of Sodom and and Gomorrah. So it is a story about the depth of human depravity, and it's also a story of how the Lord will work to rescue his people from um, um, uh, amidst such wickedness. And it's the story we're going to look at this morning. So Genesis chapter 19 is where we're going to be, and we're going to work all the way through the text this morning. And it's a long Account And let me remind you of where we left off last week, because we've been tracing the life of Abraham, the father of the, the nation of Israel, and, the, and how the Lord has been dealing with Abraham. We've been tracing this life and how the Lord's dealings with Abraham. And in chapter 18, two main things came to the forefront. And the first is that the Lord is trustworthy to keep his promise. And that's in verses 1 through 15 of Genesis chapter 18. The Lord is trustworthy to keep his promise. After, Remember the promise was made back in Genesis chapter 12 and then it was reaffirmed in Genesis chapter 15 and then in Genesis chapter 18. After years of waiting, the Lord comes to Abraham and Sarah and tells them that he's going to come back this time next year and the child of promise will be given. Isaac will be given to Sarah. And Abraham, remember, he, at this point he's 99 years old and Sarah is 89 years old. And so when she hears that news that when the Lord's going to come back in a year and she's going to be with child, she laughs. She laughs with a sense of disbelief. And we read in verse 12 of chapter 18, she thinks to herself, she says, after I'm worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? And the pleasure, by the way, young guys, is not the sex itself. 
the pleasure is the pleasure of bearing a child. She says, am I now going to be able to bear a child at this point? She says, there's no possible way. She says, I'm, I'm well past the childbearing years. Even Paul, in Romans chapter 4, he says, Sarah, whose womb was as good as dead. So Sarah says, there's no possible way. She laughs, and the Lord hears her laughter. And he knows her inner thinking. And so he rebukes her. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? And it's, it's a rebuke to her, and it's a reminder to us. Is it not? It's a rebuke to her, no doubt about that, but it's a reminder to us that the Lord that we serve is indeed the Lord Almighty. And he can make a barren woman fertile. He can breathe life into a dead marriage. He can take a situation that's hopeless and fill it with hope. He can pierce a hard heart and bring forth new life. We sang about he can set the prisoners free. He can give sight to the blind. One of the things the patriarchal narratives do for us is they remind us that nothing is impossible with the Lord. And we got to get out of the mindset. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but we got to get out of the mindset of limiting the Lord based upon our circumstances. Because we sometimes think to ourselves, uh, we sometimes limit the Lord based on our situation, or our experiences, or our circumstances. We think to ourselves, my marriage is too far gone. There's nothing the Lord can do here. My situation is too hopeless. That person, this person, the, the loved one that I've been praying for, he's too far gone. He's beyond the Lord's reach. And so we limit what we think the Lord can do. And therefore, what we, we don't do is we don't go to the Lord in prayer about it. We don't expect the Lord to work in any meaningful way. And what that actually reveals about you is while you may sign off on Christian doctrine mentally, at a heart level, you're essentially a practical deist. Does that make sense? If you look at your life, and you look at your situations, and you think, the Lord can't work here. The Lord can't intervene in this situation. That person's too far gone. My marriage is too dead. This situation is beyond hope. While you may ascribe mentally the Christian doctrine and the Christian faith, and maybe you even are a Christian, but in those moments, you're essentially living as a practical deist. And my hunch is, we all live like that from time to time. Is that not true? I know I do. I, I'm guilty of this all the dang time. I tell myself all the time when I'm in situations that, well, there's nothing I can do about this. This isn't going to be solved. And I, I have to remind myself you're living as a deist. And it's a, it's a little rebuke to myself. You're living as a deist. You don't actually think that the Lord could actually intervene. He's just some God in the sky that doesn't intervene himself in any way. That's practical deism. And what the patriarchal narratives tell us again and again and again, and we have to let it soak into our thinking and then down into our heart, is that the Lord can do anything. The Lord can inter, intervene in any one of our situations and can breathe life into it. And that's what this story reminds us of with Sarah. No, the Lord is going to, he is going to work in your room, Sarah. And, and you've got to get out of the mind of just being a practical deist. So that's the first thing the, the text reminds us. Here's the second thing the text tells us, is the Lord is quick to listen to those who are in covenant with him. He's quick to listen to those who are in covenant to him. And that's the scene we looked at last week where... Um, the Lord brings Abraham, it's this kind of a tricky scene. The Lord brings Abraham into his confidence. And he says, hey, here's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember what Abraham does? He starts pleading. He starts pleading with the Lord. Now listen, um, this is not Abraham bartering with the Lord. You don't barter with the Lord. You don't cut your own deal with the Lord. So it's not bartering. This is interceding. This is this is Abraham interceding with the Lord on behalf of Lot, saying, Lord, if there's fifty there, would you sweep away the city if, if there's fifty righteous there? And the Lord says, No, I, actually let's look at it. We have time. Uh, skip down to chapter chapter eighteen, look at verse twenty.
the Lord actually brings Abraham into his confidence. The Lord said, verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have, they have, uh, what, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men, uh, the two angels who were with the Lord, the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abram, Abraham uh, still stood before the Lord. Um, the Lord says, I'm going to check out if their sin is as grave as the outcry is. Let's come against it. Sodom was well known for its blatant and boastful sinfulness. It's kind of like in our culture, how when you think of Las Vegas, that, that blatant and disregard for, for righteousness comes into your mind. We, that's, that's how we typically we think of Las Vegas. We even, we call Las Vegas Sin City. Yeah? Sin City. We even have a slogan about it. That's very cute. We say, well, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's a cute little marketing slogan. Um, but that basically says, come and enjoy the lifestyle of Vegas. Let yourself go wild. And it won't follow you home. That's, a, that's kind of the slogan. They're trying to get away from that, by the way. Because they're recognizing it's hurting their tourism. Um, but Vegas is a place that doesn't hide its sinfulness. But it flaunts it. It's not remorseful about it. It's remorseless. Uh, it's, it, it's very proud of it. And that's how Sodom was. Sodom was, in a lot of ways, like Vegas, but more so. Because it wasn't just sexually immoral. Sodom wasn't just sexually immoral. Um, although that's certainly part of it. The part that we're going to see today was the sexual immorality. But if you look in other Old Testament passages, Ezekiel chapter 16 and Isaiah chapter 3, I won't make you turn there, but you can reference them later if you want to. Um, Sodom was also very socially immoral. It was a very prosperous community, so very affluent, but rather than aiding the poor, they worked against them. Um, they worked against those who were poor and needy. They oppressed them. They were known for their arrogance. They were known for their complacency. They were known... Um, for supporting those who were doing evil. This is a picture of Sodom. It was socially immoral and as, as well as sexually immoral. And so the Lord's going down there to inspect it. He's going as an inspector to judge if the outcry that's come against it is true. And so Abraham stands before the Lord as the judge and he intercedes on behalf of Lot. And look at, again what he says in verse 20, uh, 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within that city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? And not spare it for the, for, for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's a great question to ask yourself. When you're going through a challenging situation, is will not the judge of the earth do what is just? Will he not do what is right? Will he not do what is right? Of course. Of course he wills. And so Abraham pleads with him. And he goes from 50. And the Lord says, I won't destroy it. If there's 50 righteous in it, I won't destroy it. And Abraham pushes a little bit more. Well, what about 40? If there's 40 righteous, he says, I won't destroy it for 40. He intercedes again. Well, what about 30? I won't destroy it if there's 30 righteous in it. Well, what about 20? Gets him down to 20. What, what about 20? And he keeps interceding with the Lord until the Lord is down to just 10 people. Look at verse uh, 32. Abraham speaks up again. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. If there's just ten, just ten people who are righteous, the Lord says he won't destroy it. 
Verse 33. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram, and Abraham returned to his place. So the Lord, he says, if, if there's just ten people who are righteous within that city, I won't destroy it. He pledges he won't destroy it. And with that, the Lord goes, the Lord leaves. Acting as the judge, he goes down to inspect Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is left awaiting the verdict. Now, that's the background, because what happens in chapter 19 is the attention shifts away from Abraham, and it focuses in on the Lord's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which immediately tells you that there wasn't even ten righteous within it. So it focuses on the destruction of Sodom and the deliverance of Lot. He will destroy, the Lord will destroy Sodom, but he will deliver Lot. So everything will be destroyed, and one family will be delivered. Does that remind you of any other story in the book of Genesis? It should. It should remind you of the story of Noah. It should remind you of the story of Noah and the flood, right? Should it not? And Moses intentionally writes it this way, because he wants us to see that humanity, apart from the grace of God, is not basically good. Humanity, apart from the grace of God, is completely morally degenerate. It's completely wicked. Humanity, apart from the grace of God, stands condemned before the just judgment of God. That's why Moses writes this. And there's all sorts of parallels. I want you to look for the parallels. As we go through this account, there are all sorts of parallels between the destruction and the deliverance of Noah and his family and the destruction and the deliverance of Lot and his family. And I want you to look for them. Some are, some are pretty subtle, but some, at the, especially at the back end, are pretty blatant. So I want you to look for that. Now, before we jump in, let me give you the outline. I know some of you guys are note takers. You like to see where we're going. So if you're a note taker, take note. Here's, the, here's what we're going to see. There's four scenes basically working through this account. The first one is this. The wickedness of Sodom is seen. That's the first one. The wickedness of Sodom is seen. That's in verses 1 through 11. Second one, the rescue out of Sodom is sheer mercy. The rescue out of Sodom is sheer mercy. That's verses 12 through 22. The third one, the destruction of Sodom is completely just. The destruction of Sodom is completely just. That's verses 23 through 29. And then here's the last one. The influence of Sodom is lasting. The influence of Sodom is lasting. That's in verses 30 through 38. And we'll see how that plays out when we get there. Okay, let's get into the text. Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels, now these were the two angels who came with the Lord to Abraham, and now they're, they're, uh, they're coming to Sodom. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So these two angels, they approach Sodom and, and Lot's sitting there at the city gate. And that's an important note um, because the city gate was the physical symbol of the collective power and the authority of a community. It was the place where the leaders of the community, oh, there goes all my notes. It was the place where the leaders of the community uh, gathered to render decisions, to render um, verdict on cases. And so Lot's there as, as one of the leaders of the community. He's seen as one of the judges of the community. He's there uh, to give opinions, to render verdicts. He's, become, he's gained power and influence within Sodom. He's politically connected to the place. Everybody recognizes him as one of the leaders of that place. And there's, there's really no doubt about that, by the way. Everybody recognizes him uh, as a leader. So he's there... He's definitely a leader. And these two angels, and they see Sodom right away. So uh, these two angels come to the gate. Well, why two angels? Well, remember, uh, this is a precursor to the Mosaic stipulation that everything had to be established by two witnesses. Remember in the law, for anything to be confirmed, you had to have at least two witnesses. 
And the outcry has come to the Lord that Sodom is this wicked place. And so he sends two, two men, two angels there to investigate. And these two angels, they will give witness to what they hear, what they see, and what they experience. And they will confirm, <laughs> oh yeah, it's as wicked as everything we've heard. And so Lot sees them. And then the second part of verse 1 When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and to spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they and they ate. So Lot urges him to stay inside of his house because he knows if they stay out in the town square, he knows this is a wicked place. He says, well, you, you can't stay there. This is a dangerous place for you. And so he's seeking to protect them. And just like Abraham at the beginning of chapter 18, he, he offers them hospitality. He quickly prepares a meal and he tells them, uh, in the morning you're going to rise up early and you're going to go on your way. Again, he's trying to protect them. He's saying, you need to get out of Dodge. This town is not good for you. Um, you're here, but you probably ought not to be. So he's seeking to protect these guys because he knows how wicked the people of Sodom are. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Uh, now look at the, the pains that Moses goes to as he's writing this to tell us that all of Sodom was there. All of the men of Sodom was there. Remember, Abraham pleads him down to 10 people. If there's 10 who are righteous within the city, will you spare it? And Moses intentionally, look at how he writes this again. Uh, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the pe- all the people, to the last man surrounded the house. It's Moses' way of saying, there's nobody. There's nobody within this city, outside of Lot and his family, who are righteous. It is as it was in the time of Noah. Completely debased. Completely senseless. uh, Completely apart from the grace of God. This is Moses' way of confirming uh, the the. Uh, Moses' way of saying the witnesses are confirming that there's nobody there who's righteous. And so verse 5, And they, this mob, this mob mentality, they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That phrase, that we may know them, in Hebrew, uh, that denotes sexual intercourse. And it's a kind of a play on words. They're taking the intimacy of marriage and they're, they're degrading it to the lowest level of sexual intercourse that we may know them. Because sexual intercourse in marriage is the deepest way of knowing your spouse. And they're saying, bring them out so that we may know them. They're, they're, it's a parody on the true commitment of marriage. This is homosexual gang rape. That's what this is. And you can read, I wouldn't recommend it, but you can read all sorts of revisionist history, uh, revisionist scholarly work that says the sin of Sodom wasn't the homosexuality per se. It was the gang rape aspect of it. Uh, you can read that. You can find all sorts of scholarly work like that. But that doesn't actually hold any water. Uh, and the reason it doesn't hold any water is because if you go into the New Testament, I won't make you turn there, but in Jude, Jude verse 7, there's only one chapter in Jude, so Jude verse 7, uh, Jude said it was the sexual, the homosexuality is sexual, Im, uh, uh, the, um, the homosexuality was the sexual immorality. Jude, Jude, Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual, sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now look, listen to what Jude's saying here. He's saying the unnatural desire is what is the 
what is the sexual immorality. And the sexual immorality, he says, wasn't limited to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it wasn't the gang rape aspect. I mean, that is sinful. Of course that is. But it's the unnatural desire. It's the homosexuality. And he says that's not just limited to Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it was the surrounding cities. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that, that that took place in. So the gang rape aspect of it couldn't have just been the only thing that was sinful. It was the unnatural desire. It was the pursuing of uh, intercourse with men upon men. They were trading. What was taking place is they were trading the way God created us and the way he created, he, the way God intended sexual relations between a man and a woman to be in a monogamous marriage relationship. And they're seeking to pervert it for, with men upon men. But it reaches its crescendo in Sodom as the town turns up in mass at Lot's door to have homosexual sex with these men. It's, it, again, it's gang rape. That's what it is. Turn, these guys turn up in mass and they're saying, we're going to take these men and have our way with them. It's just wicked perversion. And so these guys call out to Lot to bring him out. Verse 6. Lot went out went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. He's trying to protect these guys. He went out, went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Again, he's trying to protect them. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Okay. This is why I had you take your children out of the service this morning. Um, Can we say insanity at this point? The height of foolishness as a dad? Um, Some scholars will say that he's actually, Lot is bluffing here. Some scholars will say that, that he's bluffing here. He's trying to shock the men into seeing how wicked their actions are by offering up his virgin daughters who are pledged to be married. We'll see that in a second. And so they're saying, no, he's just trying to shock them. I, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. Um, whatever the case, maybe he was, maybe he's not. The text doesn't really make it clear indication one way or the other. I think we can all say the offer is cowardly and inexcusable. And, and yes, in Eastern cultures, hospitality was of the highest importance. Uh, once a person came under your shelter, you were to protect them at all costs. And yet, your own family would also be at the highest priority. And he's, got, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's no doubt. He's, he's got terrible choices whichever way he goes. But this is a terrible choice. And he offers up his daughters. But notice, it's rejected quickly by the men of Sodom. They say, no way, we don't want the daughters, we don't want the women, we want the men. Keep going, look at um, second part of verse, um, verse 9. But they said, stand back. They shouted at him. He makes this offer, there's this mob mentality, and this, he says, you can have my daughters. And they say, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He came to live among us. And he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you then with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So Lot thought he was going to protect these guys. In the end, these angels ended up protecting Lot. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. He says, your acts are dark, so I'm going to blind you. And so the, the angels blind these guys. They're, they're spending all night groping at the door. And Okay, now we go into verse 12. This is the second section, the rescue, the rescue of Lot. Then the, mid said, uh, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this place has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were about to marry his daughters, up, 
Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. So these sons-in-laws, these were the guys who were pledged, in all likelihood, pledged to be married to his daughters. And Lot comes to them and he warns them, hey, this place is about to be judged. The Lord's going to destroy this place. And note, just like in the days of Noah, when Noah warned people, the judgment was coming. They, they ridicule Noah and they paid no attention to the warning. That's the same thing that happens here. They paid no attention. They thought he was joking. And so they don't listen to him. They start laughing at him, mocking him in derision. And note this, um, just note that while Lot had influence within the city, he had gained political influence, he had zero influence amongst his family. Absolutely zero influence amongst his family. Now let me say something here to dads. Because this is a warning for dads. Um, Dads will spend so much time, all of their time, a lot of their time, seeking to gain influence in the community. Seeking to make a name, build a reputation, make a career, make a living. All that's good and right. But if all your energy is spent making a name and building an influence in the community and it has no and you don't have any influence in your kids' lives in the morality of your kids shaping your kids you've wasted you've squandered one of the prime responsibilities that you have I say that to myself as much as I say it to you dads I think of this all the time if if I gain influence in the community and I have no influence in my kids' lives when they're older, I've squandered the main thing that I'm here for. And we've got to take this as a warning to us. As if, you're, if you're a dad, um, and we'll see more of this when we get to the end of this chapter, we'll see how bad this gets for Lot, how he has not passed on the faith, passed on the morals of the scriptures in any way. But it's a warning to us that if you're, if you're spending all of your time, all of your energy, all of your resourcefulness, your energy gaining influence in the community and it doesn't spill over into your home life or or you squander your home life for that, it's a grave mistake. And that's one of the things that we got to get out of this if you're, if you're a dad right now. you got to see that in Lot. So it continues, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. As morning dawned, he, he warns his sons-in-laws, they don't listen. And so as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Lot lingered. Lot himself, he lingers here. Uh, Sodom and his position within it had become so important that he was hesitant to leave it. Derek Kidner, in his great commentary on this section, he says, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of Lot at this point. And so the second part of the sit, second part of verse 16 and so the men seized him. The men grabbed a hold of him, him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. He says, escape to the hills, lest you be swept. Some of your translations there, it will say, uh, run to the hills. When I was in uh, Bible college, it's the reason I left. When I was in Bible college, I was dating Tria, and um, one of the professors knew that we were dating, and he wrote on my paper these words right here. He said, run for the hills. <laughs> Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape for your life lest you be swept away. And I had no idea where it came from at that time, but I read it now. Every time I read it, I just chuckle to myself because Dewey, it was Dewey Bertolini. Uh, he's a great professor. Uh, he wrote that on, my, on one of my exams. <laughs> so the, the angels, it's not funny to Lot. It's funny to me. But it's not funny a lot. These angels say, you got to run. you got to get out of here. You're, if you don't run now, you're going to lose your life. you got to take this warning, the judgment. you got to take it seriously, Lot. No lingering. 
No dilly-dallying. You need to take this seriously because the judgment is coming. You need to take it very seriously. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. He looks at this other little city and he says, this city right over here, I can't live in the hills. I'm not a hill person. I'm an urban person. Can I just go live in the city? Uh, He says, let me escape there. Is this not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, the angel said to him, behold, I will grant you this favor also. You've got to think this angel is like, oh my gosh, this guy, what is his problem? Fine, go, get to the city, whatever. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zor. Verse 23. This is the third section. The destruction of Sodom is just. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And then the Lord reigned. Note that phrase. Uh, Abraham says, will you sweep away the city if there's 50? And it gets them all the way down to 10. And just as the Lord rained down on Noah, he puts it right here. Then the Lord rained. No, it's not actually rain, though. We'll see in a second. But it's that, that imagery. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Um, in all likelihood, the, the Lord caused a violent earthquake to take place, which releases heat and gas and sulfur, and maybe some lightning was thrown in there, which lightning is co- pretty common in that area. And so he overthrew, verse 25, he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, she looked back. She longed for the city in which she had built an identity. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So everything in that, everything associated with that evil society was overthrown. Even Lot's wife, who apparently so identified with that city, her heart so clinged to that city that she stopped and she looked back. And upon the gazing, she becomes a pillar of salt. Destruction. Everywhere you look is destruction. And verse 27, in Abraham, we get this panoramic over to Abraham, some 40 miles away, probably at least, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now note that phrase, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Now I had to note that because it's important to note the uh, Abraham's intercession on behalf of Lot. It results in Lot's rescue. Let me ask you this. Does your intercession matter on behalf of others? You better believe it does. The Lord hears and he remembers Abraham. He hears and he remembers Abraham's prayer. And he rescues Lot as a result. My hunch is many of you have been rescued as a result of other people's intercession on your behalf. And my other hunch is the Lord has used your intercession on behalf of others. And he's worked within the Trinity in such a way that your intercession was used by the Lord to bring another person into saving faith. So does your intercession matter? Yeah, you better believe it does. It makes a world of difference, literally a world of difference. He remembers Abraham's prayer and he rescues Lot as a result. Okay, now lastly, verses 30 through 38, what we'll see 
is the influence of Sodom is lasting. The influence of Sodom is lasting. Now, Lot, verse 30. Um, remember, he's lived in the little town of Zor, and uh, he decides he's going to leave that little town. Maybe he's fearful that it's going to become like Sodom, and so he decides he's going to leave Zor and live up in the, in the hills that are surrounding the plains. And it's there in the hills that are surrounding the plains where, like Noah before him, he gets drunk. And he engages in shameful behavior. Now notice again the parallels between the story of of Noah and Lot. So verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hill, lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. After the firstborn went in and lay with her father, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So she decides, the older one decides, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the old man so drunk that we're going to go in and have, have sex with him and get pregnant by him. And he won't know about it at all. And they get, that's exactly what they do. They, they get him so drunk that he engages in sexual intercourse with his daughters and gets, they, they conceive. Because now, remember, earlier in the passage, the father was willing to use his daughters for sexual purposes without their consent. And now the daughters are willing to use the father for sexual purposes without his consent. Now again, notice the influence of the father on his family. None. He has no influence. The the daughters are influencing him. He has no influence in his daughter's life. The culture of Sodom. Now, here's what that means. The culture of Sodom, not the culture of the covenant community of Israel, has shaped the daughter's character. He spent all his time, all his energy, all his influence on shaping the, the, the culture of Sodom. And that culture has completely shaped his daughters. And so the very next thing, the very next day, the, the younger daughter is gonna, does the exact same thing. And Lot's too drunk to know. Look at verse 34. Um, verse 34. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. <laughs> and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So the offspring here, uh, the offspring of of Lot's daughters become the Moabites. And the Ammonites, two of Israel's bitterest enemies going forward. Which means the corrupting influence of Sodom is lasting. You can take the girls out of Sodom, but Sodom is still within the girls. The influence. There's an old Brooks and Dunn song, kind of like that. I won't sing it for you. But you can take them out of Sodom. But if their character has been so shaped by the culture already, it doesn't matter. It's going to continue to influence them. And that's exactly what happens. And the account mercifully ends right there. And so we're going to do the same. We'll end right there. Here's what I want to do. We've got about 10 minutes left here. I want to focus our attention on what we learn because there are some de- de- definite things that we learn from this section. Three things that come right out of this hard section of Scripture. Here's the first one. And you need to see it. The warning of judgment. This whole section is about judgment. And, and judgment is not a topic 
that is pleasant to talk, talk about. No preacher wakes up thinking to himself, I can't wait to talk about judgment. I can't wait to talk about fire and brimstone. Nobody wants to do that. But the warning of judgment is real. And you need to take it seriously. You need to take it seriously. One of the things we cannot miss in this section, you should not miss in this section, is that God will deal with sin. He will judge. He will not put up with evil indefinitely. There is a limit to both the depth and the duration of human depravity before he judges it. And what the text is urging us to do, Moses writes it in such a way for the people of Israel and for us. The text is urging us to wake up and to heed the warning of God's judgment and to take it seriously. And this is exactly how Jesus used the story of Lot and his wife. Turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Because this is exactly how Jesus uses it. Luke is in the New Testament, if you're new to the Scriptures. Third book into the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Had to think there for a second. Luke chapter 17. And Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 17. He's teaching and he illustrates through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Lot that just as there was judgment in the past for the sin of humanity, so there will be judgment in the return of Christ. He will judge again at the return of Christ. Skip down in, in Luke chapter 17. Skip down to verse 28. Did I tell you 28? Well, back it up a little more. Go to verse 26. Uh, well, let's go to 22. You, you want the context. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the man, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Hmm. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying there's a day of judgment that's coming. And just like in Sodom's day, just like with Lot's sons-in-laws, there will be people who won't take it seriously. While there will be others like Lot's wife who think the Lord will delay in coming. His judgment will be postponed a little bit longer. And because they're not prepared for it, They'll be swept away by it. So the warning of judgment is real. He's warn- what Jesus is doing, he's warning them against the future righteous judgment of God. And he's calling them in Jesus' day, and he's calling us in our day, to take the warning seriously. Because the Lord will not put up with evil indefinitely. So now, now listen to me. If you're not a Christian, you need to take... The, even if you are a Christian, both of you, if you're not a Christian or a Christian, the warning of judgment is real and you need to take it seriously. He will not put up with evil indefinitely. And by the way, you don't want a God who will put up with evil indefinitely because that wouldn't make him a good God. So he will deal with evil 
and he will come and judge. And so the warning of judgment, while it is not pleasant to talk about, it's important for us to think about. So the warning of judgment is real and you need to take it seriously. Here's the second thing we learn out of this. The path of compromise is easy. The path of compromise is easy. And you need to be on guard against it. And we see that in Lot's life. Lot moved to Sodom. Way back in Genesis chapter 13, we talked about that, right? Way back in Genesis chapter 13, he chose for himself. And he pitched his tent right outside of Sodom. And the next thing we see, he's moved inside of, inside of the town itself. And after moving inside the town itself, he gains a position of authority. And maybe he thought he would elevate their morals. Maybe he thought he would positively affect them. But in the end, he was the one who was affected by them. Lot didn't pull them up. Sodom pulled him down. Yes, it says in Second Peter chapter 2 that he was tormented in his soul over the things he saw and heard in Sodom. We're told that in Second Peter. And yet over time, ever so, ever so slowly, ever so subtly, he became a little bit more and a little bit more like the people of Sodom. To the point when the judgment is happening, he hesitated. His morals became so twisted, he offered his daughters to rapists. His lifestyle so enmeshed in the culture that he had trouble letting go of it. His influence was so weak with his sons-in-laws that they laughed laughed at him in derision. His daughters were so morally indifferent that they raped their father. He had compromised so much that he hadn't passed down the faith or any of the moral training to his daughters. Now listen, I say that to you. And we live in a culture that's not all that different than Sodom. And it's very easy for our hearts to become enmeshed in this culture. And now the default setting, now listen, the default setting of the human heart is towards compromise. Have you ever noticed that? We're very quick to compromise. This is why in Hebrews chapter 2 it says, therefore we must pay more careful attention to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that's, that is the default setting of the human heart. The default setting of the human heart drifts away. It compromises one degree at a time. One, one compromise at a time. I'll just lie a little bit about this thing over here. I'll just look at this site over here even though I know I shouldn't be looking at this. I'll just do this thing or, or fudge a little bit on this thing. Or tax season's coming up. I'll just shade a little bit of the truth over here. We're naturally prone, all of us, to drift, to compromise, and to become more enmeshed in our culture, like a lot. And instead of lifting up our communities, we get dragged down by our communities. The path of compromise is oh so easy. And we, we've seen this the last couple of years, have we not even within the Christian culture? You think of Ravi Zacharias. You think of the situation with Bill Hybels in Chicago. Um, there's all sorts of, all sorts of them. You think of any situations, so many situations in our own lives, and you realize that like Lot, the path of compromise is oh so easy and you and I need to be on guard against it. So what do we learn? First, the warning of judgment is real and you need to take it seriously. The path of compromise is easy and you need to be on guard against it. Here's the third thing we see. The way of rescue is available and you must seize it. The way of rescue is available and you must seize it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Are you still in Luke? Okay, turn back a couple pages in your Bible to Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is, what's happening in in, uh, Matthew 11? Jesus is denouncing cities in which he did ministry but the people didn't come to him in repentant faith. Jesus came and offered himself, offered his life to him, did miracles amongst them. 
And they didn't come to him in repentant faith. And look at what Jesus says, verse 23. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Holy smokes. (laughs) What? It'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for people who have heard the message of Christ and didn't come to him in faith. Oh my. Well, what shall we do? Well, go on. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Little children, that's a, it means people who have um, no social standing. People who are completely dependent upon somebody else. You've, revealed, you've, you've hidden them from the wise and understanding, people who are self-sufficient, but you've revealed the truth of who I am to little children, people who, who desperately need to know. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's the key. Come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hmm. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, like Sodom, the arrogant, the unrepentant, are blinded from finding the way. But others, those who aren't arrogant, those who um, know they're needy, know that they're out of step with God's will, well, they see and they recognize the rescue that's available in and through Jesus Christ, and they seize it by coming to Christ. They seize it by coming to Christ with repentant faith. Now listen, the warning of judgment, the warning of judgment is real, and you, need to, you do need to take it seriously. But the way, of, the way of rescue is available. It's available through Christ, and you must seize it. And you seize it by coming to Christ in repentant faith. By coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I know that I'm bankrupt. I know that in a lot of ways, I'm just like Lot. I may put on a good face for Sunday mornings, but in my day-to-day life, I'm a lot like Lot. I've compromised in a lot of things. I've compromised in a lot of ways, Lord. I've made decisions, I've made choices that I'm not proud of, not happy with. But I'm coming to you in faith, Lord. Would you please forgive me of my sins? That way of rescue is available. It's available in and through Christ, but you've got to seize it. And you can do that right now. As we close, as I close in prayer, if you're coming to Christ, there will be people up here who would like nothing more than to pray with you, to help you come to know Christ. The way of rescue is available for you, but you've got to seize it. And the way you seize it is by coming to Jesus personally. It's his sheer mercy, just like it was the mercy of the Lord to pull Lot by the hand and get him out of that. It's the sheer mercy of the Lord who will do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredibly hard passage. This passage that, really, Lord, we don't even uh, like to read all that much because it's so dark and it's so twisted and it points how, how dark and twisted the human soul really is. And while that's not a pleasant topic to talk about, the way of rescue that's available in and through Jesus Christ is amazingly glorious, Lord. That you would make a way by your sheer mercy to pull us up out of our own sinfulness and come to know you and be washed and cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, I pray, and we would pray as a congregation that anybody who is seeing uh, their own sinfulness this morning through the reading of this passage and yet is seeing the way of rescue through Christ, we would pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring them to the point where they would come to you in genuine repentance. They would admit that they're a sinner 
that they would believe Christ has died for them and has risen to give them new life and they would confess their sins and come to you this morning and that they would come up afterwards and, and talk to the people who are up here praying, talk with me and that you would bring forth new life this morning. We trust you for these things, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us. In Christ's name, amen.